The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I'd like to start out again by reminding you that you can go to wealthformula.com to get all sorts of resources that are not available from the podcast alone. You're missing out on about 50% of what you can get by not going to the site. Amongst the things that are included there are my number one selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. This is a book that is available on Amazon. You can buy it there, but you can also get it for free. Just download the PDF at wealthformula.com. You can also get a copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, by simply texting 44222. Again, that's 44222 and put in the words wealth formula, one word, and you will, again, get a copy of the PDF version of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. Now, as for today's show, let's begin with that topic. Why do I advocate investing in real things like real estate, precious metals, you know, things like that, that you can touch and feel and aren't complicated? And why do I prefer those things over stocks, bonds, mutual funds, intangible things? Well, because really the biggest reason is because I understand them and they are, for the most part, pretty predictable. Right. I understand that when I buy an apartment building that people have to pay me rent if they want to live there. That's that's just how it works. It's pretty simple. That property value itself, you know, of that apartment building might go up. It might go down. But as long as, you know, there's a pretty good margin of safety on the rents, uh, even if the rents had to go down just a little bit, the income, the actual income that I receive on a monthly basis or maybe a yearly basis or whatever you want to say, again, it's pretty predictable. Now, apartment buildings are also, you know, a really good hedge against inflation, right? I mean, rents go up in an inflationary environment and so does the value of my property. Now, gold is somewhat predictable too, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I mean, there's short-term volatility, but it's an excellent hedge against inflation. You know, if you look at gold in the Roman times of Christ and ounce of gold bought, bought you a toga and a nice pair of sandals. And today, what does an ounce of gold buy you? Well, depending on your tastes, a nice suit and a pair of shoes. Now, does does that mean when I say that, that I never invest outside of cash flowing real asset paradigms? Well, I wouldn't say never. Okay. Again, the reason I like these kinds of assets, you know, real assets is because fundamentally, listen, I understand them. I'm a simple guy. You know, I I don't understand the way complex financial products work, but I understand these things. And to me, to a great degree, they are also very predictable. And it's because I understand them that they're predictable. And, And that's really just, again, my perspective. But again, that's my perspective. And someone else out there may have another perspective that allows them a competitive advantage in certain kinds of investment strategies that to me, you know, they all look Greek. But if I look at what my broader investment philosophy is, rather than let's just focus on an asset class, really here it is. 
I like to invest in things where the cards are stacked in my favor. That's really what it comes down to. You know, I don't have like, I know a lot of people do, but I don't have like this sort of moral thing about, well, I can't invest, I have to invest in this and that because that's the right thing to do. No, I mean, I'm, I'm very pragmatic. If I know I'm going to win or if there's a much better chance that I'm going to win than I'm going to lose, then I probably invest. But I just, you know, personally have never been in that position in the equity markets. I've never felt really that the cards were stacked in my favor there. You know, I mean, in fact, I don't really believe for the most part that the cards are stacked in the favor of any retail investor's favor when it comes to the equity markets. I mean, it's at the end of the day, you know, where if you're not a professional trader or you got some kind of system going that you can, you can put things in your favor, you're really no better than a gambler at the casino. And you know what? The casino always wins. The casino always wins unless you have an unfair advantage. Okay. So I remember a while back, I was trying to look it up. I can't remember what it was called, but there, there was this documentary a few years back that I was watching about the MIT blackjack team. So these were basically a bunch of math whizzes, right? They would go to Vegas undercover and they, you know, they had all sorts of card counting, you know, other little algorithms that really just let them go there and clean house. And in fact, you know, it's actually technically not illegal to count cards. And so these guys would, you know, they, they would go there and they'd win and they, you know, they'd get all undercover, you know, they dress like they were arms dealers and, you know, they were just high rollers when they're actually just a bunch of kids, geeky kids from MIT and they were killing it. And then Vegas, you know, they, they kind of caught on and, but, you know, they'd rotate these teams in and out, they'd go and clean house and they'd come out. But anyway, that again, listen, that, that's a different game, right? Because not, now you're not a gambler. Now you have a systematic approach that puts winning in your favor. I mean, these guys were pulling out a cover for a weekend. These kids would come out with a half million bucks. Now I'm not a gambler. I, you know, if I do, if I go to Vegas, I mean, once in a while I might play blackjack, but as soon as I lose like 20 bucks, I'm like disgusted and I leave mostly there. And I, and I, the way I think about it too, is like, you know, I, I just make sure I get enough drinks to cover whatever money I lose. And then I call it, a, call it even. That's kind of the way I see it. But anyway, if I could count cards or if I could have some kind of little algorithm in my head, like those MIT kids on the blackjack team, well, I'd be at the casino. I mean, I I would definitely be at the casino. Why? Because the cards would be stacked in my favor. So how does this pertain to you or to anything that we talk about with regard to investing? Well, it I'm telling you these days, especially it does. And it's crazy that we're out there on the same field where there is all sorts of computers and artificial intelligence competing. You know what? You're going to find out all about that stuff on this week's Wealth Formula podcast. And so when we return, I am going to talk to you. A guy who knows all about this, Howard Getson, the founder of an artificial intelligence-based hedge fund called Capitalogics. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets, such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. 
Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double-digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com, accesswealthaviation.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Howard Getson. Howard is a graduate of Duke University. He also holds an MBA in law degree from my alma mater, Northwestern University. In fact, he used to have lunch in the hospital cafeteria at Northwestern, so he knows we've been on uh, common ground very much. Now, Howard's interesting because he founded a company called Capital Logics. Now, Capital Logics develops, believe it or not, hedge fund in a box technology. It uses artificial intelligence. So what they do is they use thousands of algorithmic trading systems and automated testing platform and a database of trillions of performance records and try to identify the trading candidates with an edge in different markets and trading conditions. So obviously really fascinating stuff. Howard, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, it was terrific to meet you at the Genius Network and I appreciate you inviting me onto the show. Yeah, that's a great group and was really cool to meet someone in your business. Now, Howard, I'd like to back up a little bit because it's so interesting what you're doing. And I'd love to get your sort of story. And how did you, obviously you had an, you got your MBA and your law degree. How how did you go end up in the artificial intelligence hedge fund business? Well, it's a good substitute for lack of the real thing. No, um, (laughs) It turns out that when I first graduated law school, I started working as a corporate securities lawyer who did technology law. And I, I loved my clients and I I didn't love my partners as much as I love my clients. I had brought a computer into the law practice probably by 87. And I remember conversations where they said only secretaries type. Ah. I was like, no, 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 this is a productivity tool. But lawyers don't care about productivity. They're going to bill 40 hours uh, (laughs) one way or another. So um, (laughs) it, it was different back then. Yeah. But but I believe in this concept of unique ability and it's it's not only something that you've got superior skill doing, it has to be something that you love doing. And I found that I spent time thinking about technology and what was possible and and reading about the future and figuring out how to create that future way more than I cared about billing 2000 hours or <laughs> yeah, or yeah, doing right. what I used to do. So I founded uh, a company in, in 91, and we, we didn't know it was going to be an artificial intelligence company at the time. We started using rules-based processing and time-based rules and role-based rules. And ultimately, it became a, a pretty successful company, but I sold it in the year 2000. And, and along the way, you know, I started speaking at conferences and I got to know a lot of CEOs from Silicon Valley, and I invested maybe $100,000 in a company like Tom Siebel's company or or Salesforce. And that investment grew very quickly. And initially, those investments were what I'll call fundamental analysis, right? I mean, I, I analyzed the CEO or the market space and, and maybe some additional information like how did the employees respond behind closed doors or how excited were they about their future? It wasn't really inside information, but it was behind the scenes, you know, actual in the trenches knowledge. And I felt pretty good about that. And I made a ton of 
money. So I thought I must be really good at investing. <laughs> what I what I realized now is I was really good at being born so that that stage of my career was in one of the biggest bull markets of all time. Right. Yeah. Even just a, to be clear, Howard, when you were investing in these companies, do you mean you were investing in them before they were publicly traded, or or, or as stocks? No, no, I was buying their stocks. Oh, okay, and, got it. And yeah. so, but so that's the thing is from you know late mid nineties through early two thousands, if you bought Global Crossing or you bought Siebel or I mean the these stocks were amazing. Right. Uh, right. I remember somebody telling me his strategy was every time a certain stock hit a hundred, he would buy more because they were going to split. And I mean, it's stuff that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but yeah right. But the point is that in a bull market, actually, I'll, I'll tell you what the point is. Humans are stimulus response conditioning machines. And so in a sense, they try to find patterns and they get rewarded for certain behaviors and they develop superstitions. And so in a sense, people did make money, but they attributed what happened to skill or a certain set of behaviors when when really it was a coincidence rather than caused by those actions. You know, I try to explain it to my team now by saying there was a psychology experiment done on pigeons and there's two little levers in their cage. And if they press the first lever and then the second lever, they get food. And what happens over time is these pigeons figure it out, but they figure it out in a superstitious dance where they think they peck once and they flap their arm right. and they turn around and they puff their chest and they peck again and they do get rewarded. Every single time they do that, they get rewarded. But really, all they had to do is peck the first one and peck the second one. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a whole lot of trading systems were developed as a superstition rather than as a way to find the actual proximate cause of the return. And mm -hmm. so as, as technology has gotten better and you can use artificial intelligence or machine learning or deep learning, let me make one distinction there. When I used to build trading systems myself, I, the human, was using a tool to solve the problem. But when we say to a machine learning platform, here's a whole bunch of data, you go solve the problem. And I've anthropomorphized the, the tool, the machine learning. I'm, I'm not saying that the human is going to solve the problem. I'm saying, look at billions of combinations and try to find things that might work. It's an elegant use of brute force, but it's also a form of logic that's not human-based logic. And so even as the human wants to pretend they understand what happened, we're getting to the point where you can understand the process, you can understand the testing process. You can understand the validation process, but these things are happening at light speed. You can't actually understand what's happening and you certainly can't understand what's happening in real time. And so it, it's a totally different game we're playing now. I, I presume you're talking specifically about the high frequency trading and that sort of thing. When did that really start, Howard? And when, when did the game change that? So first off, I want to distinguish that we don't do high frequency trading. Right. Now, we do use the same kind of hardware and the same speed of analysis, but we're doing high-frequency analysis. We might even be doing high-frequency asset allocation, but when I make a trade, I make a trade for days. Right. We're, we're not trading microseconds. Sure. Everything changed in 2003. 
Okay. And that's when electronic trading, uh, let, let's go back to like the futures pits. So do you remember pictures of Wall Street back in the day where you saw people in the pits with their arm raised and they're buying and selling? Yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's stuff in Chicago with the Chicago future pits yeah. where they hire yeah. linebackers right. and hockey players because right. it's really important to, you know, be seen. And uh-huh. if I were to take you to the pits today, you would see a, a bunch of reasonably old men sitting on chairs with laptop computers, talking nicely amongst themselves and their computers doing most of the stuff. We're now at a point where I would say more than 90% of the trades happen electronically. 90%. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and actually this is a really important distinction because now do you mean 90% are, are, artificial intelligence based? Nope. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, they're, they're computer based and it might be as simple as a moving average crossover. It, it might be based on simple technical analysis and that certainly is not artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. but it is, it is a computer. Let me make a distinction though. In the old days, markets were a discover a price discovery tool, right? I mean, in a sense, a, a free and fair market is a way for you to feel good about the fact that you're paying the right amount for what you buy or sell because there's so much competition. So ultimately, like chart patterns, and this is kind of a weird way to look at it, but it represented the collective fear and greed of populations. Sure, It's kind of like the law of large numbers. An insurance company doesn't have to figure out what day I'm going to die, but they look at a 54-year-old male uh, who doesn't smoke and only drinks moderately, who exercises three times a week, and they say, if I have 10,000 of them, how, how many are likely to die this year for any reason? And it's it's not hard to come up with a, a reasonable estimate of that. Sure. So a stock market was a way to say, you know, since the beginning of time, human nature hasn't really changed much. Sure, technology has. Sure, the, you know, the external things like the kind of cars we drive or or what we do with our free time has changed, but human nature hasn't. So as prices go up quickly or slowly, some people are going to say, ooh, this is an amazing opportunity. And other people are going to say, ooh, I better sell because I want to protect my profits. And it's the law of large numbers. So when I look at certain technical analysis patterns from back in the, let's say, 90s, it was really easy for me to explain them as like an arm wrestling match between the bull and bears. And so the first part of the pattern was somebody did this, and then the response was this. And ultimately, they come to a stalemate. And as soon as somebody wins, it's going to be this big of a move. And the pattern all of a sudden made sense from a behavioral economic standpoint, as well as a technical analysis standpoint. And it made me feel good. There's a, another theory called Elliott Wave Theory, and it's called socionomics. And what they're saying is these patterns are based on the emotions of people. And it was fascinating stuff, and I loved it. But I believe that a lot of that stuff is no longer valid. And, and that's going to piss a lot of people off. Yeah, so what you saw in 2003... Did that? Well, uh, well, you well, couldn't explain you it anymore. Valid. Yeah, I have to. I have to tell you why it's not valid. First, right. it's because if ninety percent of the trading is done by computers, then the responses that are happening are not based on the collective fear and greed of a population. And so, in a sense, those rules, the things that used to be true, the things that that like the the people who taught me how to trade knew. They think, they feel, but they know were true, were true, but they're not true anymore. And so a lot of these people have become the foremost experts in the world of something that has become mostly irrelevant. And it's irrelevant 
not because it wasn't interesting. It's just that it's not how things are traded yeah. anymore. There's a different game. And so those, those same patterns are now the honeypots that show me where humans are. Mm-hmm. When I see that, I understand where the machines aren't. Machines, well, actually, any trading system, any, any market maker, any local on the floor, they would do something called running the stops. Right. In a sense, they understood where people were putting their stop losses or their buy targets, and they would try to move the market down and then back up to because markets only exist if people trade. So they had to find ways to make people trade. And so when it was pit based, they would use um, the sounds in, in, in the pit. If it was too quiet, somebody had to do something to shake things up. And then you would trade the momentum and you could tell there was momentum because you could hear the roar or the rumble. Well, nowadays that's happening faster and with more volatility because it's algo bot trench warfare where when, when a certain algorithm isn't getting what it wants, it tries to shake the weak hand. It places an order here. It puts a bid there. It, it, it does stuff. But right. in a sense, you're going to see periods of increasing volatility with increasing speed. Right. And why did that start in 2003? Because that's when electronic trading finally became common for most markets. Actually, 2003 was the first year that all the major commodity markets traded electronically. So the S&P used to be pit traded. And for a long time, even though there was electronic trading, pit trading dominated. But now electronic trading dominates. And so there's a different symbol. But the ES is, for example, the, the symbol for the electronic futures contract for the S&P. And you don't think of that as a commodity, right? But it is. The S&P, the Dow Jones, the Russell 2000, all trade as a futures contract. The you know contracts for gold, silver, crude oil, natural gas, the euro, the yen. And so it turns out there's a ton of volume on markets like that. And it's a market that governments trade. It's a, it's a market that central banks trade. So you can trade a hundred million dollars and not really affect it incredibly liquid. Right. But right. there's another reason to trade futures, and it's that sixty percent of every trade counts as a long-term capital gain. So if you're gonna trade quickly, why pay the extra tax? Right. I mean, if if it <laughs> trades the same as an ETF, why pay thirty or forty percent tax on your gain if you can pay twenty-three percent tax, even as a richest American, trading a different contract? Right. So there, there's a lot of reasons that mm-hmm. we do what we do, but part of it is that electronic markets became a lot more prevalent, and part of it is because regulation favors it. Let's take a step away from this and say, okay, well, knowing the way things are here, what are the implications for everyday investors? I mean, what this change in the market that you signed in 2003, that, how does that affect you know, your, your typical portfolio you know, from, from your perspective? A number of ways, but the first thing I want to do is I want to distinguish between investing and trading. Sure, and they're they're both fine; they're just different. So for me, investing is where you want to own a company because you believe it's going to win. So let me give you some examples of companies that I think are going to win. And I'm not making an investment advice. I'm simply saying AI machine learning is becoming dramatically more prevalent. Mm-hmm. So who are the leaders in that space? Companies like Google, Amazon, NVIDIA. Why NVIDIA? They make they make the chips that let you do things a thousand times faster than normal PCs. And it's, it's kind of what has sparked this race. So if I'm thinking five, 10 years in the future, it's hard for me to imagine 
a world where those companies become less relevant in the next five years. Sure. So from an investment standpoint, that makes a ton of sense. But if I'm trying to trade those companies, that's a totally different game because that's not based on my long-term sense of what's happening. That's based on the ability to try to figure out when the momentum is going up or down or where there's an edge. And one of the things that <laughs> that I believe is that, you know, if you look historically, markets have tended to go to go up, right? So if you find strong companies that you're willing to bet on for the long time, that's a great investment. And that's how Warren Buffett made a lot of money. Trading has become harder and harder because edges decay faster than ever before. So as a trader, I believe that humans not only have a worse edge than before, I actually believe they have a negative expectancy in trading. It means that I am no longer active as a trader, even though I've traded for dozens of years and I've marked up tens of thousands of charts by hand and with computers. I am to the point where I'm saying, why would I look at a chart or a trading idea if if I can look at every chart and every opportunity, we're in an age where there's virtually unlimited computing resources that allow me not to have to believe that my system works. I can be skeptical and say things work until they stop working. And what I want to figure out is what's working right now. And so we used evidence-based allocation. Now, what that really means, if I say it a different way, I'll, I'll simplify it, is that markets are random to me on a moment-by-moment basis. If I have a, a Nobel laureate and a cleaning lady, and they both decide to buy Apple stock, the Nobel laureate might have done it because they have some broad economic theory and a calculation. And the cleaning lady might have done it because she heard the iPhone X is about to come out. If they both buy at the same time, they both have the same expectancy or the same probability that the stock's going to go up or down from the moment they buy it. On any individual buy or sell, it's kind of random. Is it going to go up or down? But over 10,000 trades, whether you make and keep money is based way more on your risk management, on your ability to follow best practices. And so automation makes sense there because you can automate best practices. You eliminate the fear, the greed, the discretionary mistakes that humans have. And you say, I can even add edges because I can calculate real-time expectancy scores. I can, I can figure out how to even improve my odds by finding a way to create what we call alpha by avoidance. Alpha is the excess profit you make for manager skill. And alpha by avoidance is a way for me to make money by eliminating bad choices. Mm-hmm. And so if I do scenario-based trading where I say, look, if the market goes up really quickly right here, um, these are the little programs that buy and sell the market. We call them bots. These are the bots that are that do best when the market goes up. And if the market goes down really heavily right here, these are the bots that do the best. Once I use kind of analytics to figure that stuff out, I don't have to use analytics anymore. Now all I have to do is be be able to use computers that are fast enough to tell me which of those baskets of bots is making money faster. And so in a sense, we're momentum trading technique rather than predicting markets. And this becomes important because even though patterns happen again and again, the order that those patterns happen is random to me. There was just a hurricane, but we didn't know how bad it was going to be, but the hurricane happened. There was a power failure. There was a flash crash. Sometimes there are Trump tweets. 
these are things that I didn't know were going to happen. I guess now we know Trump traits are going to happen. <laughs> but, right. but realistically, in a, in a sense, those exogenous events affect markets. And so to me, it adds an element of randomness. And and so to the extent that we know it's going to be random, why even spend $1 trying to predict random? Yeah. If it's yeah. random, why not figure a different way to make money? And so what we figured out is we, we call it time arbitrage. We're used in supercomputers, but we're calculating the real-time profit and loss of millions of bots in real time. And we use techniques like behavioral clustering and AI to to kind of figure out which of those baskets or regimes is most likely to continue doing what it's doing. But why I call it time arbitrage is there's a difference between guessing and knowing and knowing is more profitable. And so the time arbitrage is the faster that I can know something while somebody else is guessing is really where my edge comes from. Right. And so and so yeah, that's yeah. what we're that, that's what we're doing. It's the same way that as a doctor instead of using only physical exams, they use things like MRIs or x-rays because you can shorten you can the know. time to the diagnosis and you can get to treatment faster. Yeah, yeah. One one thing that I, I want to try to understand better is because you've made a, a, a distinction between trading and investing, and I totally understand that. But does the you know new world of, of bots and AI, does that affect investing as well in, in, in the bigger picture? I mean, does it encourage asset bubbles, for example? I mean, I would think it might, but are thoughts on that? or Yes. Yeah, so the, the answer is it does, but not in a meaningful way for somebody like you. And the reason is, is if you buy NVIDIA stock or Apple stock and you're going to hold it for months or years, the thing that that this trading edge or the high frequency traders affect are a tick here, a tick there. It's it's almost a teeny tax. It's just part of slippage and commission to normal traders. It affects somebody like me much more because I'm making thousands of trades. And so the, the slippage and commission adds up. But if if I were making a trade and I were going to be in that trade for weeks or months, it, it doesn't affect you as much. Mm-hmm. What affects you is the increased vol- volatility. And so it may trick you into having a weak hand, meaning holding the stock less tightly and saying, ah, it's time for me to sell before it was actually time to sell. Mm -hmm. But if you're focused on another business and you're not really looking at it moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, it it shouldn't really affect you. I don't know if that's- No, uh, that that does make sense. I mean, I think think what you're talking about is the volatility is is on a smaller scale. right? Right. I mean, depending on what you're looking at, if you're looking- at a big enough picture, then then you're seeing mostly signal and very little noise. As you move to shorter and shorter time frames, you have to be able to do digital signal processing to figure out what's signal and what's noise. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is, I think you described yourself earlier before you got into this kind of thing as you know fundamentals, right? Sort of like a Warren Buffett type investment model. If you didn't have the information. Uh, that or say say you knew that this information was out there and you know this trading that's gonna uh, was happening how would you invest if you didn't have access to it uh, i would find somebody who does no that's a great idea no i didn't but, but i guess but i mean seriously yeah. like, like let me tell you my dad had cancer uh-huh. When my dad had cancer, they were they they ran a biopsy. They were waiting. 
And my father says to me, and, and he's, he's saying this in total seriousness, tell the doctor how good my cholesterol was. And I looked at my dad like, why? And it's because my dad, as a human, wanted to have hope. And so he was thinking about the thing that he knew and what he, he was like, come on, come on, just tell him, tell, tell him, you know, that my cholesterol's down. And so I said to the doctor, uh, my dad wants you to know the cholesterol's down. And I could see the doctor looking at me like, is this guy stupid? And then I could see that he knew we were just trying to make my father feel better. But a whole lot of trading right now is designed to make you feel good. Sure. And so when you hire a typical broker, I, I know when I first hired brokers, I thought that they had some secret that I didn't have that was going to, yeah. in a sense, help me make money. Uh -huh. But really, they're really good at their job. Their job just isn't what I thought it was. Their job was to make me feel comfortable. Right. Their job <laughs> is to, is to right. help me make money slow enough or lose money slow enough so that I didn't get out of the game. So you're more because of a counselor. if I take counselor. my money out of the game, then it's hard to make money. <laughs> right. Right. But in a sense, trading is often, to me, like Vegas. It's an attract and distract industry. When you go to Vegas, they've got cocktail waitresses wearing very compelling costumes. They have flashing lights and sounds. They pump oxygen into the room. They make sure that you can't tell if it's night or day. They don't even let you play with money. You play with something that represents money. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, their goal is to make sure that you get enough value for the money that you're spending that you don't notice that you're winning or losing. And in a sense, you've budgeted a certain amount of money for the fun you're going to have in Vegas. And if you lose too much too quickly or win too much too quickly, they make sure to comp you a room or give you a show or do something because their their goal is to make this fun enough that you want to do it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Well, I think trading is a lot like that. And in, in a sense, one of the things that I try to tell people in my company is don't pay attention to what the market's doing. I mean, if we're trading the S&P or gold, I don't care what the S&P or gold does. And that doesn't make sense when you first hear it. But if I told you we're using many, many algorithms, then it should make sense because I don't care what gold does. I care what my algorithms that are trading gold do. And so I want to know, is it my bull market specialist or bear market specialist or volatility specialist. So paying attention to what the market does is a distraction. Having that same level of instrumentation, the charts, the metrics, the ability to figure out what's my profit factor, what's my standard deviation of error, all that. I want that instrumentation to be on my trading systems, on my techniques, on my risk management, not the market. And so when I hear Dow Jones went up 30 points today. I realize somebody's playing the wrong game. <clears throat> right. Right. <laughs> right. So let me ask you this. So say you're, you know, a lot of my listeners are, you know, they're doctors or, you know, they've, they've got some money. They might be six figure plus, you know, mid six figure. They might be people who have, you know, have $100,000 to invest in something at a given time. Is there a way you said find someone who does do this? How, how do they do that? How do they find someone who can, who's, who's doing the, um, the well, it's going right. to get a lot easier. I mean, somebody like us 
Yeah, it's, it's going to get a lot easier. So yeah, there's an old world of trading and there's a new world of trading. And a whole lot of what you've seen till now is the old world. But but it's kind of like the internet, right? I mean, when the internet first came out, it was easy to find a website that had a banner that flashed and everybody shared the dancing baby. But now everybody has a website and it's really easy to buy stuff. I could I can just as easily buy a pair of sneakers online as I probably easier than going to the store now. So it's going to get easier. Now, the same is true for, for this kind of electronic trading or artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's the golden age. People are going to say, I can't believe how lucky Howard was that he was there at the beginning. But everybody listening to this is there at the beginning. Right now, This it's happening. And you don't have to rush to get into this this moment. You just have to recognize it's happening. Look, it's coming to the medical profession. Tell me about the Da Vinci robot. Tell me about the fact that radiologists have a real problem because they're developing AI and machine learning modules that are going to read x-rays or MRIs as well or better than humans. I mean, it, if you're a pilot, talk about Autolander. If you're somebody who drives a, a taxi, recognize that autonomous vehicles are coming. It's happening. The people who used to do airline pricing models, clearly machines are going to do that better. Same is true with trading. Uh, there's, there's no question that somebody, uh, look, I've spent almost $40 million on the platform we use to trade. So we have a hedge fund and that fund is available to accredited investors, but ultimately, Ultimately, we're making this platform available to other hedge funds, and and you'll start to see many, many more hedge funds based on either our technology or, or similar or or reasonably different, but still technologies mm-hmm. based on kind of this new world. Of, there's your, a lot of ways to make money. Yeah. What's what's your minimum investment and in, for credit investors in in your hedge fund? Uh, right now, we we take quarter million dollars as the minimum investment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but. Again, you should find a financial advisor or a fund manager that you understand and you appreciate the direction they're going in and just recognize that this is something that's coming. You know, I'm not supposed to make bold statements, but what I'm going to say is this isn't a question of if, it's an inevitability. It's a question of when. Sure. Right? I mean, technology is getting better much faster than humans are getting better. And, And so- we're already at a point where I would say technology is better at trading than humans, certainly in, in my experience. But I think that in general, that that's going to get much more true, much faster, much more broadly. So whether you're trading bonds or options or, or whatever, you're going to see the edge start to assert itself and start to change markets. And I, yeah. I think the way you'll see that is more volatility faster. So it won't necessarily be long periods of volatility. It's going to be more periods of extreme volatility for short periods of time that people use as as giant profit opportunities. Fascinating stuff, Howard. I mean, this has been really great. Let me ask you this. Now, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, I know you've got a newsletter, which is awesome. I'm on it. Can, can you tell us a little bit about how we can get involved? Yeah, actually, for for your users, if they just send an email to Howard at CapitalLogics.com, so C-A-P-I-T-A-L-O-G-I-X, there's only one L in the middle, so it's the word Capital and Logics, C-A-P-I-T-A-L-O-G-I-X.com, so Howard at CapitalLogics.com, and, and just put the word newsletter, we'll give you 
for for your listeners, we'll give a free newsletter comes out weekly where we talk about the advances in technology and trading. And sometimes it's about AI or machine learning, and sometimes it's just the general interest. But it's a lot of fun. Uh, I highly recommend it and happy to do that. Fantastic. That's a great way to get involved. Great, Howard. Well, again, I really appreciate this. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really fascinating. And I just want to thank you again for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. All right. You know, from my standpoint, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And I've been in this space now for 20 years. And the coolest part for me is so many of the things that I had hoped would be true. So many of the things that I just intuitively sensed were going to happen are happening right now. It it really is a great time to be in the market if you have an edge. So that's fantastic. uh, Thanks again. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back, everyone. Now, I'm sure you were fascinated. I mean, you had to have been fascinated by Howard. He's obviously a super smart guy. And again, going back to our analogy from the beginning here, he is in this business and he's in this business with the card stacked in his favor. So, yeah, I mean, gosh, I mean, if, if I was Howard, I would be doing the same thing. I mean, this is obviously a smart guy who understands who's done very well. And the idea that the equity markets are not a casino to him or they are a casino. He's just like those kids from MIT who are going there and cleaning house. I mean, that's that's basically it. But the other thing I, I want to just point out, though, again, is is it just the perspective here from where most of us are at, right? Most of us are, are, are not uh, artificial intelligent. We don't have our own supercomputers and that sort of thing. So, you know, I certainly wouldn't blame you for trying to, you know, try to get involved with somebody like Howard. That makes a lot of sense. If you have an unfair advantage, if you have a way to make the unpredictable predictable, then by all means do it. I mean, as long as it's legal, I mean, why not? My point though, in the larger sense is that, you know, I talk about cash flow and, and real assets and all that. And again, that is really what I believe in for the most part. But if there are things that you feel like you can have an advantage in, you feel like, you know, you're not just gambling, then listen, as long as you know the rules and what I mean, when I say the rules, I'm talking about doing things that make sense and that you understand. But as long as you know those rules, if you have some extra money to play with, maybe it's doesn't, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea to take a shot down the field once in a while with a certain amount of income and and see where it goes. I certainly wouldn't recommend that for people who just trying to figure out how to, you know, make enough cash flow to pay the bills. But at any rate, hopefully that was something that you can, you know, kind of digest. And if nothing else, if you're in the equity markets right now, you and and you're just, you know, you're in your IRA and stuff like that, it might make you wonder if <laughs> maybe you should get out. <laughs> you're not you're competing with computers, folks. So 
Anyway, I do want to once again remind you that I would greatly appreciate it if you are enjoying the show and what I do here to go to iTunes, give me a five-star review. Definitely make sure that you subscribe to the show. That's how iTunes ranks these shows and that's how we climb in the ranks. And we climb in the ranks, we get better and better guests. And we're going to have some really awesome ones in the next month or two. I guarantee you're going to be excited about some of these people. But in the meantime, that's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey signing off from the Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.